Reading from the Grapevine, November 2020. Let us pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Our topic on these articles is our 12 traditions. This one is called Second Tradition Checklist. He was going to save AA. Someone had to do it. A member recalls AA's early days before the traditions were were written. And this is sent to us by BL from New York, New York. So it's a long one. Shortly after I returned to the office from lunch, the phone on my desk rang. It was a late autumn day during my first sober AA year. Did you know J.B. got drunk? asked the AA acquaintance on the line. Such momentum's news overwhelmed me. Jay was the chairman of our group. I had considered him Mr. AA himself. Now I felt that the whole movement would soon totter under this disastrous blow. Unless someone rushed to the rescue, a brilliant new leader would have to be found quickly. Well, how about me? I had been a club president a couple of times in school. Surely my ability would be a great boon to the fellowship. But he's so young, I could hear someone exclaim. I was chronologically 27, emotionally minus one. Yes, but he is really brilliant, a wiser voice would reply. By this time, I had tidied up my desk, made some excuses to the boss, grabbed my briefcase, hat, and coat, dashed to the subway, and ridden halfway to the old church building we used as a clubhouse for AAs in Manhattan in 1945. I carried with me about as much sense as a flea plotting to run a kennel. Surprisingly, everything seemed calm when I arrived. No doubt some committee somewhere was already privately trying to find someone who could save AA. How could I let them know I was willing, even if it was a tough job with low salary? I make the sacrifice of gratitude and love for AA. I could already hear my inaugural address after the swearing-in ceremony. Plenty of laughs plus enough heart stuff to bring tears to the eyes of the old folks, everybody over 30. Then a ringing peroration of rededication that would bring them to their feet roaring as I turned modestly from the rostrum to take my seat of honor. At the clubhouse, though, I could do, all I could do was smile graciously at everyone around, cheerfully reassure some re- new thresh from my lofty eminence of ten sober months and chin a bit with other seedy statements. I even for the first time sprang for several cups of coffee. Throughout that afternoon and even, however, no one mentioned the vacant chairmanship. So finally, I brought it up over coffee after the meeting. Isn't it too bad about Jay? I brightly blurted. Only one old-timer paid attention. His look seemed to probe uncomfortably close to my deepest secrets. But his voice was kind as he said, Well, just because Jay got drunk doesn't mean you have to drink. The idea was so breathtaking, I just shut up. But my mentor continued, you see, we'll, we will get someone else to do Jay's job. We rotate chores around here, you know. 
There's really no honor connected with AA offices or titles, just work, and it's often dirty work at that. Although our 12 traditions had not yet been put into words, the truth, the spirit, and the sense of our traditions were guiding those who helped me. The shattering of my fantasy of eminence in AA was one lesson in what was to become our second tradition. That AA had no bosses, and that fact only slowly learned, even more reluctantly accepted, but finally embraced, is greatly responsible for my sobriety. To stay sober, I had to learn that I could not be a boss in AA, no matter how much I wanted or tried to. There had been an earlier lesson on the observe of that truth, that no one in AA could boss me, neither upon discovering my very first day in AA, that there was no place to sign up, no formal right to initiate or mark me as a member. I had asked with puzzlement, but how will you know if I stay sober? We won't, we won't, I was told, but you will. My first AA conversation had been an ever-increasing series of shocks, but this was almost too much. No one would check up on whether I had a drink or not. I felt relief, coupled with mild tingles of panic. What? Was it possible for me not to get drunk unless something or someone forcefully prevented it? And wry, anger, damn it, this was a dirty trick. Why wouldn't they give me some magic thing to keep me safe? No one in AA tells us what to do or scolds us for not doing it. My first AA friend had explained, now, 25 years later, I am convinced that as much as anything, that truth about AA heated up my determination to belong to the fellowship. But appreciation of the truth did not spring forth full grown to whittle down. An ego, egotism like mine takes years. It still sprouts unexpectedly, sneakily. And many experiences similar to my short-lived dreams as the AA presidency. If I never became a power and a glory in AA, it wasn't for lack of trying. Just a few months later, I actually did become chairman of a new small group. I summoned my other officers to a meeting and informed them of the new organization and the new rules that I was setting up. And in a few days, I got drunk. In fact, I remember the preparation of writing bylaws for four separate groups in New York City in the 1940s. We just did not trust each other or our successors. Each of those business sessions for tr framing such documents, as you no doubt suspect, was a comedy that could been titled Full Moon Over the Madhouse. The records of our labors had long since disappeared, but the groups did survive and now flourish beautifully without such appurtenance. Also surviving is a lesson that can be drawn from this experience. Those who did not get their way in the squabble over laws frequently got drunk, and some of them did not survive. I truly believe that our second tradition, like all of the others, is important for my individual survival, as well as for the, that of every AA group and our fellowship as a whole. 
At still another time in my life, I was again chosen to be chairman of a group. After serving some apprenticeships, on the night of the election, no one else wanted the job. Despite my previous experience as a chairman, I was enormously moved. I felt very happy and even proud to receive from my group something that felt like an honor. Big deal. At the very next meeting, the entire group turned on me. It was not personal, you understand. It was just that the coffee was too weak that night and the meeting had run overtime. In every single AA job, I received gripes and criticism. Yet it has been rewarding to learn, to listen to criticism, to evaluate it, to use it or reject it, and then to go on doing the job the best I could. In all honesty, I can say there were some pats on the back too, but I did learn that no matter what AA title I might briefly hold, I had absolutely no authority over any AA member. And of course, no AA member group committee, office, or board had any authority whatsoever over me or any other member. It has to be love, not government, that keeps AA stuck together. This has the effect of keeping us all on the level in AA and makes brotherhood easier than it would be if some of us were higher, others lower. I have at last, last come to like the fact that for AA purposes, the final authority is a loving God. Whatever concept of a benign creator power that word may represent to each of us as expressed in the consensus of us all. Suppose it were otherwise. Suppose we had layer upon hierarchical layer of drunks scrambling for higher and higher rungs of AA power and fame. Suppose we have to elect representatives to sit in some governing body instead of the strictly advisory councils, which our intergroup committees and the general service conference are. Or what if we had to choose a national president? Can't you just hear the nomination speeches and electioneering, electioneering slogans? Can you just hear the debates? Can you just hear sobriety groaning under the strain? Then the ice and in the glasses, the cans and corks popping, and the sound of mass DTs that would surely result. Fortunately, AA never puts us under such stress, thanks to our second tradition. Two things about the group conscience, however, still bother me. One is the fact that the tradition does not say in an informed group conscience. Once we discuss all evening just what kind of quarters our central office should move into. Not one of us had ever searched out or tried to lease office space. Another time we went on and on about procedures for electing regional members of AA's general service board, but only two people in the room had ever read the third legacy manual, now revised and titled the AA service manual. If we had been better informed, our group's decision would probably have been wiser. The other things about group conscience that has given me trouble is the discovery that it does not always agree with me. After quite a few such ego-wounding differences, I had to admit that the group conscience could manage without me, but that I needed it, just as we say about AA. 
Finally, one more thing about this tradition troubles me. And that is the word trusted. I cannot do all the 12-step jobs that I like to do and that need doing in my town and around the globe. But surely I can support with loving trust. Those are intergroup and GSO who do help to make AAs reach citywide and worldwide. The committee that arranges conventions or banquets, meetings, programs, or group anniversaries also deserve confidence. If I'm not doing any of the work, the least I can contribute is trust in those who are. Vice versa. If any AA job is entrusted to me, especially the 12-step call, I will do the best I can, especially if the person is a sick newcomer who has just come to us. For in this way, I maintain my own recovery. If we cannot trust each other, as our second tradition suggests, who on earth can we trust? This is my second tradition checklist. Do I criticize or do I trust and support my group officers, AA committees, and office workers, newcomers, old-timers? Am I absolutely trustworthy, even in secret, with any AA 12-step job or other AA responsibilities? Do I look for credit in my AA jobs, praise for my AA ideas? Do I have to save face in a group discussions or can I yield in good spirit to the group conscience and work cheerfully along with it? Although I have been sober a few years, am I still willing to serve my turn at AA chores? In group discussions, do I sound off about matters on which I have no experience and little knowledge? This is from BL New York, New York. From the Grapevine, December 1969. Our Grapevine story, our 12 traditions, comes from Raleigh, North Carolina, from a Corrine H. Reprint from Grapevine, 1990. Freshly squeezed sobriety. Wearing orange juice cans and a wine-stained robe, she opened the door to AA. Because of Tradition 3, they opened the door to her. One woman's journey to Alcoholics Anonymous began like this. The telephone call was made to the AA phone number, and two lovely, clean, sane, sober women were sent to a middle-class suburb on a Saturday night. I'm sure they wondered what they would encounter. They rang the bell. The door was opened by an Operation in a wine-stained robe, wearing orange juice cans for hair rollers, <laughs> walking on tiptoes because her heels were greased with petroleum jelly and she'll fall if she walked flat-footed. The explanation this operation gave for her charming appearance was that the next day was Sunday and she had to look good for her Sunday school class. The visitors could tell from the wine stains on the robe and the carpet that this greased operation had a problem keeping the alcohol on the inside. They could also tell she had a few other problems. At one time, I was ashamed to admit I was the operation. Today, I know after countless tear-jerking, belly-laughing experiences myself, this experience can be used to save another life. <laughs> 
How those two women kept straight faces as they began to share their experience, strength, and hope, I'll never know. One talked about how her drinking had led her to AA. The other talked about how her drinking affected her family life. Both said they were finding hope and recovery in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of course, I cried a lot as I listened to them. My shame and remorse and guilt were weighing me down to say nothing of the orange juice cans on my head. We talked about drinking. I tried to tell them about me, what a terrible person I was, and then she, most beautiful words that I hope I never forget were said to me. You don't have to tell us anything about yourself that feels bad. We only want to help you stop drinking. I was doubtful. How could anyone like me? I didn't like me. I wasn't sure you would accept this woman, the mother of four children and stepmother of two who broke up two families and two homes surely wouldn't be judge appropriate to come into this group. If these women were any example, also I would not, I was not a pure alcoholic. I was duly addicted, although at that time I couldn't see how prescription drugs were also causing me monumental depression and anxiety. Although I had never heard of a or read the 12 and 12, I was sure I could be classified as a fallen woman. Two nights later, minus orange juice, cans, and slippery heels, I was taken to a meeting. Still sure you would judge my outsides, I wore a brand new white winter coat, fabulous, fabulous straw hat, white gloves, the works. After the meeting was over, I looked for my white coat and couldn't find it. Someone needed it more than I did. They left me the hat. I was too frightened to show my outrage at such an act. I was still afraid you wouldn't accept me. But not one single person ever told me I didn't qualify or that I wasn't acceptable. Three weeks later, I heard a talk that broke my damn up tears. A man had done what I had done, walk out of a family and home for the only lover that was important, booze. He was sober six years, and I heard him say, everything will be okay if you don't drink. In my home group, there are 15 to 25 men and women. There are several duly addicted people. There are people who have pilfered from the till. There's a man who gets the steps mixed up since he had a stroke. There's a woman whose husband has been unable to speak or function for over 10 years. We range in age from 23 to about 70. We have a new member with six days of sobriety at this writing and an old timer of 14 years. We are predominantly white, but often have a few blacks or women attend. We are single, married, divorced, widow, and widower. We are doctors, lawyers, homemakers, computer operators, stable hands, sales people, truck drivers, and retirees. We have slippers and staunch members who didn't touch another drop for the day they walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. We are believers, doubters, and atheists. We all have problems other than alcohol. But we're all there for one reason and one reason alone. We each have a desire to stop drinking. No one who comes to the doors of our little brick meeting house leaves without knowing that and knowing that we not only want them to come back, 
We need them back. In my home group, we come together to share our experience, strength, and hope with every suffering alcoholic who comes our way or is already there. And we never ask questions, so no one has to tell us anything they don't want to. Corrine H. from Raleigh, North Carolina. <clears throat> Thank you, Corrine. Thank you very much, Corrine. Now, our next article is from West H. from Idaho, also from July 2009, Grapevine. Ever since I began in service, I had constantly heard about the need for money in AA to support many different functions and purposes. I just wanted to step on my soapbox for a minute and tell you what I have come to see about our seven tradition in AA. When I first walked in the doors, I was confronted with a lot of people who seemed to be concerned with me and with my well-being. I didn't understand why these people who didn't know me seemed to want to help me. I couldn't help but be suspicious of their seeming lack of motive. Then they passed a basket for money. This, I thought, must be the catch, my money. So just to spite them all, I abstained from putting my dollar in the basket. However, this did not change anyone's response to me. Even over time, and I began to see that there was something more to this concern. After a month or so, I decided to go to coffee with a family that had been invited me to join them for some time. I remember feeling very uncomfortable to be interrupting their family. During lunch, they were all so happy and so intimately close to one another. Regardless, they sat me down at the table and began to include me in the conversation. After a while, it became apparent that these people were not related at all. And an overwhelming feeling overcame me as I realized that, like me, they were all outsiders grafted into a family of recovery. Soon my money began to get into the basket and there was still no change in how I was treated. Over the years, I have begun to see why these people love me and wanted so badly to help me. When I see a newcomer, I understand because I was in that person's shoes and have been given a priceless gift that saved me. It gave me a life. I wanted to see those people get what I was given. I know it isn't about money, it is about sharing a message of hope and life with someone who has lost both. My money is nothing more than a tool used to help us to get the gift to the next person who will have it. Outstanding article from West H, Idaho. Very good, very good, very good. Most thankful. Grapevine Story by John B. from Louisville, Kentucky. Most thankful. Messy, sad, and sorry. His worst Thanksgiving ever is the one this old-timer never wants to forget. It was Thanksgiving 34 years ago, and I was 21. We were all gathering as we always did at my maternal grandmother and grandfather's home in Central City in Mel. Muhlenberg County, Kentucky. I also always look forward to seeing my cousins, aunts, and uncles. I also enjoyed visiting my uncle Tommy, who was a quadriplegic and probably my favorite relative. I always loved being with my grandparents, as I had spent much of my childhood with them. 
Their home in Central City was my refuge, my sanctuary, and especially during Thanksgiving, it was a fun sanctuary. But this particular Thanksgiving in 1984, I was deeply lost in my addiction to alcohol. I was supposed to arrive earlier that afternoon, but I chose drinking with friends instead of leaving on time. I stopped several times on the drive down to have a few more drinks. There were no cell phones at that time, so I called from pay phones at truck stop with phony excuses about why I was running behind. I arrived long after dark and too late to visit with my Uncle Tommy, a tradition he and I had every Thanksgiving Eve. I still remember what I was wearing, a blue pullover sweatsuit top and jeans. I looked grungy and felt grungy because I was grungy. I tried to clean up just before I arrived, gulping down coffee and putting eye drops in my eyes. It was a routine I was used to that never worked as well as I wanted to believe. When I finally got to my grandparents' home, everyone seemed happy to see me but I noticed a subtle concern in their eyes. I tried to make up in charm and humor what I had lost in integrity and self-respect. I sat at the dinner table and explained to family members interested in listening my made-up story about why I was nearly six hours late, but it was all just another story. It was just one more time I was bringing sadness and concern to a family gathering rather than something pleasant or hopeful. I had a large bottle of scotch hidden in my overnight bag and throughout the evening I would slip back to my bedroom to sneak a few drinks. The next morning when I, everyone was saying goodbye, I was nowhere to be found. I was sitting in my car alone in the driveway listening to music to block out everything and everyone. Alcoholism is a lonely disease. My grandmother told me several years later when I apologized to her that she was worried about my John and had known something was wrong with me but wasn't sure what it was. The reason that Thanksgiving is most memorable is that it was the day I was most disgusted with the person I had allowed myself to become. Disgusted enough to never want to repeat it. A short time after the week, that weekend, I agreed to get help for my drinking, and I've been an active member of AA ever since. For the past 33 Thanksgivings, I've been present and sober, and most importantly, able to be myself, and I hope adding to a, rather than subtracting from our family's festives. I mentioned this in our national holiday for giving thanks, because many of us today were not being feeling very thankful at all. Some may feel lost and alienated or full of self-loathing or despair. That may not be a bad thing. The bottom can sometimes also be a wonderful beginning. If you are struggling with addiction, Thanksgiving can be a time when you finally decide to make a change in your life, possibly a dramatic change. And if you do, this seemingly sad holiday moment may become that Thanksgiving you and are one day like me the most thankful for john b louisville kentucky grapevine story called welcome to the big top lawyers pilots young people and more step right up tradition four is in center ring in aa we submerge our differences to focus on alcoholism as our primary problem but this doesn't dismiss the notion that we come from widely divergent backgrounds. 
Recovery seems to work best when it is culturally relevant. Culture, cultural relevance is just a fancy term for identification. Some years ago, I received a call from a friend who was concerned about a man dressed in women's clothing was attending meetings of her woman's AA group. About further inquiry, it became clear that he was an alcoholic, pre-operative, male-to-female transsexual trying to find a place in AA to fit in. He just didn't feel comfortable in general AA meetings, men's, men's meetings, or gay lesbian meetings. My friend's group was flexible, and the women there had big, warm, acceptable hearts, so they took him in. About a year later, a friend and I were 12-stepping a new man in a restaurant. In addition to being an alcoholic, the man had been an intravenous drug user and a prison gang member. He was also on parole, and had his ethnicity was different from mine and my friend's. We were getting nowhere, so my friend called another member of our group. In addition to being an alcoholic, he also had been an intravenous drug user and a prison gang member. He was on parole of the same ethnicity. As the new man and sober two years, he came over and the two of them got along fabulously, famously. In both these instances and many others, AA members operated in the finest tradition of 12-step work, meeting newcomers where they were at, not where we thought they ought to be, helping them identify, introducing them to other AA members with whose stories they might identify. A few years ago, I met a new AA member who was an undercover narcotics detective. His job was to hang around bars and buy as many drugs as he could. My old thinking said it sounded like a dream job, but it was tough for him to stay sober under these conditions. He didn't talk about his job at meetings, and he wasn't ready to let his fellow officers know he was in AA. So I encouraged him to attend an AA meeting for cops. He found this very helpful in maintaining his sobriety. Another time, I met with another attorney who had written a textbook that was being used in law schools. Of course, that didn't keep him from getting thrown in jail when he got drunk and assaulted somebody. He was a bit pompous and quite impressed with himself, so he was thrilled when I asked him if he wanted to go to an AA meeting for lawyers. His colleagues cut him down to size pretty quick, and they also started running him around to other AA meetings and introducing him to the fellowship as a whole. I'd done similar things with doctors, priests, and pilots. As Bill W. wrote in Concept 12, when our actors and cops and priests want their own private groups, we say, fine, why don't you try that idea out? These folks are sometimes over-identified with their professional roles or their alcoholic behavior has threatened their ability to practice. Often they are excessively concerned with their patients, clients, licensing boards, or professional organizations that they will find out about their alcoholism. For those whose professional circumstances initially seem to pose a barrier to joining AA, these specialized AA meetings serve as a safe bridge into the wider world of Alcoholics Anonymous, as most of us know it. Of course, I know many professionals who do not attend prof 
profession-specific AA meetings. They simply didn't find such meetings necessary or helpful in maintaining their sobriety to each his own, or as we say in AA, live and let live. When I was active in young people's groups, I received a phone call from an old-timer complaining that young people's groups were trying to be separate and different and weren't really a part of AA after all. I was surprised because I always thought that young people's groups were simply trying to represent AA's message to, of recovery more effectively to young alcoholics. She just would not hear it and continued to berate the young people's movement. Finally, I said, perhaps you're right. Why don't you talk it over to at the close women's meetings you have at your house that I can attend? She got the point rather quickly after that. To me, the International Conference of Young Peoples in AA, the International Advisory Council of Homosexual Men and Women in AA, International Doctors in AA, International Lawyers in AA, and Birds of a Feather for Pilots are all part of Alcoholics Anonymous. They may not be part of our general service structure, but they are part of AA. By action of the General Service Conference, these special international contacts are listed in the front of AA directors furnished by the General Service Office. The article written in 2004, some groups may not still exist. Our fourth tradition of autonomy ensures that we avoid the rigidity that would destroy AA and interfere with our ability to appeal more and different kinds of sick alcoholics. To appeal more to more different kinds of sick alcoholics. We don't know how AA's message of recovery might need to be played out a century from now. But the AA groups at that, of that time will know and they will exercise their at, at, autonomy to meet that need. Fortunately, we don't have formats and, and charters and regulations one must follow to start an AA group or a whole an AA meeting. We have a body of experience and we share it with anyone if they're interested. But if they want to try something new, we welcome that and actively encourage it. We don't just begrudgingly accept it. Every group has the right to be wrong, and often they turn out to be right. When our co-founder Bill W. was newly sober, he was helped. He was helped a great deal by reading the variety of religious experience by William James. Significantly, it wasn't called the similarities of religious experiences. There are many paths to the higher power. In AA, what's different is good. We need more and different kinds of AA groups and meetings to appeal to the increasingly diverse alcoholics who come to AA today. The fourth tradition spirit of autonomy creates an atmosphere that allows this to happen. AA is a big tent and there's room for all of us under the big top. And isn't the circus fun? Paul C. from Oceanside, California, a reprint from April 2004. Thank you, Paul. A wonderful, wonderful story.